Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good evening in Shanghai, China, where we go over the Great Firewall to talk with Annie Ho, Ho Yixiao, who uh, I think, Kobus, this will go down as our youngest guest that we've ever had on the show. Uh, Annie is an 11th grader at Fudan International School in Shanghai, and she joins us on the show in part because uh, she wrote a, a very interesting article uh, for our website at the China Africa Project. Chinese companies in Africa is addressing labor conflicts, mission impossible. So welcome to the show, Annie. We are so very happy that you were able to join us. Hello, Eric and Kolbez. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Well, listen, before we get into the, the, the heavy stuff about labor and all and your trip in Kenya, I think it would be great if you kind of introduced yourself and told us a little bit about what someone who is really, you know, an 11th grader in high school, where your interest in Africa came and, and how, what brought you to actually go to, to Kenya earlier this year. Um, so it's actually because of my family background. Um, my parents are both business people, and they were actually planning to go to Kenya to do business um, this winter holiday. So I was planning to go with my mom. And then I was um, trying to let my mom tell me a little bit about her, like what's really going on with her company and how, what she, exactly the business she's going to do in Africa. And she told me that a story about a Chinese company um, in Africa uh, witnessing a death of an employee, but then failing to provide like enough compensation and was eventually sued to court. So I was very interested um, in this story. And um, I happened to meet um, Hong Hong Xiang. And then so that was how my African journey all started. And for those of you not familiar, Hong Hong Xiang is an old friend of our show. And if you don't uh, follow what he does, he is the founder of China House Kenya. And it's a group that is focused on improving corporate social responsibility with Chinese companies in East Africa and in Kenya. And he's doing a fellowship program now where he's working with young Chinese like Annie to bring them to Africa to help mm -hmm. introduce them to uh, the issues and particularly the CSR issues. So we think that is, uh, we, you know, hats off. He's an old friend to our show, but hats off to Hong Xiang for doing that and also for introducing uh, Annie to us who, who wrote this really mm -hmm. interesting essay. Um, you know, very quickly before I turn over the mic to 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 Kobus to ask some questions. Um, y y when you first you know got interested in Africa, what was your impressions about the the continent before you actually had a chance to travel there? Wow, I was actually kind of brainwashed by all the media, BBC, etc. When I think about Africa, first of all, the first question I asked was, "Is there Wi-Fi?" And then the second question I asked is. Um, is Ebola a very serious disease there? So I think these are all the stereotypes that Ch not only Chinese, but a lot of foreigners have about Africa is that Africa is kind of like a wild place where there's disease, unemployment, um, and it is a backward country, etc. Okay. All of these and, things. And, and, how, and how did you experience it once you arrived? Like what, what were your perceptions once you actually saw the real country? When I was there, I was actually really amazed. Um, first of all, um, the first thing that I was really amazed was how many cars there were in Nairobi. I was really shocked because I thought that um, a backward country wouldn't really have that much cars. But then I realized that Africa is actually not that backward uh, as a lot of 
people's perception are seeing, um, it's actually a growing and expanding. And somehow, Africa is kind of similar to China in the 1980s. And that was also what interested me a lot when I went there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are a lot of similarities between uh, China's development in the 80s and 90s uh, when I lived in China. Yes. Uh, ironically, a lot of people at that time thought China was a very backwards com- country. Um, You know, and and in many ways, I mean, how do you phrase backwards? But it was a a very poor and it still is a very poor country. And the people kind of tend Mm -hmm. to forget where you are in Shanghai and Beijing um, has no resemblance, of course, to the China of your parents uh, generation when they were your age. Uh, But it's hard for people to imagine that uh, that that it wasn't that long ago that actually that China was was as poor as many of the places we see in Africa. Well, let's now go ahead and talk a little bit about your article. So. Okay. Um, you, you wrote this article, and again, everybody can go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. It's right there on the homepage. And you picked up on this question of the, of the labor. Now, whether you, mm-hmm. I don't know if you realize it or not, but of the five or six most sensitive issues in all of China-Africa relations, labor is by far in the top three, bar none. Oh, wow. And you have picked up on, I mean, this is the thing that just really bothers people about the Chinese in Africa. Because mm-hmm. there are so many, uh, you know, Chinese laborers on the continent. There are uh, people who perceive that the Chinese are taking jobs of what uh, locals can do. Then the other part of it is what you've talked about, which is the Chinese management style. And a lot of your article mm-hmm. focused on this question of work ethic. And I'd like you to talk oh, yes. a little bit about this question of the work ethic because there is, and there is a perception. Again, these are very, very subjective areas that we're talking about here that a lot of Chinese look at Africans as being lazy. Now, yes. just, just to be fair, a lot of Chinese look at Westerners as being lazy. So a lot of Chinese look at pretty much anybody who's not Chinese and willing to work seven days a week, 15 hours a day, as being lazy. But let's mm-hmm. focus on Africa for the point of our discussion here. Um, talk to us a little bit about your perception of the Chinese work ethic and the cultural issues that you ran into when you, were to, when you were on the construction site in Nairobi of the Two Rivers uh, mm-hmm. Mall that's yes. being built there outside of Nairobi. Mm, I'll first talk about um, the Chinese work ethic. So I'll t- um, take my dad's company as an example. So my dad um, stayed in China for the new year just because um, he also has a construction going on. But what my dad told me was that it was not him trying to push workers to work for um, overtime, but it was actually the workers demanding to work overtime. So this represents that Chinese um, e- employers and also employees, they want to work overtime because that means extra salary. But then um, when Chinese companies go to um, Africa with this kind of Chinese mindset, they will experience the so-called culture shock because the Africans, of course, they're not used to this Chinese style of working 24-7. The African, well, when I interview some Chinese companies, they reflect that after Africans get salary, they might just stop going to work. Or when they're trying to ask Africans to work overtime, Africans feel confused because they've never experienced this. So this is culture shock and is actually one of the um, central problems that Chinese and Africans are facing in terms of labor conflict. Um, when you were you kind of walking around on that uh, on the building site and seeing the interactions between these Chinese bosses and and the African workers, one of the very interesting things that you mentioned is 
the that's a lot of these uh, Chinese executives don't speak any English, and that they use their mobile phones as you know they translator apps on their phones to to do some translating, and then there's a lot of kind of hand gestures. How effective is that, and like what kind of problems does that lack of of you know a common language actually cause? Um, so first of all, when I um, went to Avid International Two Rivers, um, the manager told me that they were experiencing a lot of problems of um, how like the manager couldn't speak English and they couldn't communicate. For example, um, the managers might get angry at the workers for not following his directions because obviously the worker doesn't understand. And then the worker also felt feels ridiculous because um, when I was interviewing laborers from the labor department they um, who work for the Chinese companies, they said that it's actually very ridiculous because Chinese bring technology, machine, etc. But they cannot talk and they cannot teach the skill to us. So this is the major conflict. But then um, Avid International started to be aware of um, this problem. And then they started um, having small classes to um, the Chinese managers. They, like, all the Chinese managers were also, um, as I have mentioned, checking on their mobile phones. So actually, when I interviewed the Chinese manager, they that, um, said that there's no problem with communication. Um, it was actually quite effective. We get to know each other. We've been working for a long time. But then when I switched the microphone to the African workers, it's like a completely different story. What they told me was that they felt that it's ridiculous. Um, when the Chinese manager, for example, is trying to talk about a door, he has to first um, check on his mobile phone and then say the word. And then words, um, if words don't link together, it doesn't make any sense. So for the African workers, they actually feel quite ridiculous by this um, communication by mobile phone. Yeah, it is pretty ridiculous on one level. I mean, you can see the frustration that people would have in communicating. I mean, one of the, the I mean... On one level in China, foreigners don't have to speak Chinese. But on another level, you, have to, you must absolutely speak Chinese because if you can't speak Chinese, it's almost impossible to get things done. Um, yes. I, I know I've lived there for a long time. And, and you know, one of the things I think that there's a lot of dismay about the Chinese, not only in Africa but other parts of the world as well, is that when people come to the mainland to do business, you often hear from the Chinese, wow, if you're going to come to China, you have to understand our language you have to understand mm -hmm. our history, you have to understand our culture, you have to understand our way of doing things is different than what you have in the West or what you have in Europe and other parts of the world. And it's just funny to me that when you see the Chinese going abroad into places like the United States or into Africa or other parts of the world, that they're not actually taking that medicine. Now, it's not a universal <laughs> statement, but you know, clearly your generation might be different, but you can see the contradiction mm -hmm. that's there. Uh, that that you know that that when you send managers from Avic to places like Kenya who don't speak English, um, that seems rather surprising. Yes, that actually, um, because um, I also talked to the manager. But actually, a good thing about Avic International is that all the managers are educated. They graduated from university, but then they told us that they had um, a, around a hundred Chinese managers and. 
um, like if you actually go to China, all of the Chinese managers who actually have the technology, know the skills, they are um, they didn't go to school and they didn't receive the education um, that normal Chinese people have because they probably have started um, working with machines at a very young age. So that is the problem because when China is sending Chinese managers to Africa, it's either people with skills with the um, skill to operate machines or people with the um, management skills. But then if you're going to send around 100 Chinese managers with skills to operate machines, it's very, very hard to find um, those who can actually speak English because, as I have just said, most of them are uneducated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very big challenge, I think. Um, one, one of the other issues that, 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 I, that was very interesting for me in your article um, was that every time you quote uh, one of the Chinese managers, you add that, that you're using an alias. Um, and I've seen this, you know, kind of in lots of other reporting about Chinese um, co companies in, uh, in Africa as well. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why do you think that is? Like why even, even when these people are not you know, kind of when you know they're not—they're not being quoted as saying something crazy or controversial or or critical. Um, They—they're just saying basic things about how their businesses run. Yet they—they they, there's a uh, you know this need to to not have their names in the press and a kind of a distrust of reporting. Is—is is that something that is—is is that how you understand it, or why do you think that they ask to be anonymous? Um, actually, they, I think these managers are actually afraid to take the responsibility if anything happens because um, some, at least from the Chinese point of view, some foreign medias um, are actually like when they're talking about the Chinese companies in Africa, they're trying to um, show the bad reputation of Chinese companies. For example, the headline might be um, Chinese companies with problems. They're not they're not communicating efficiently. So I think the Chinese companies are afraid that they um, that media might re misrepresent them or tell some bad side about their um, company. So that's why they're afraid to take the responsibility. Mm. How long did you spend in, uh, in Kenya? Um, I went there for about 15 days. Okay. So I'm curious to think, how did your impression and your worldview of China, not of Kenya or Africa change, but how did you see diff the China differently or did you? Well, I actually read the, a book about the China-Africa relationship, about um, the Chinese role in Africa. And when we're really talking about labor issues, we should probably look outside of the problem and think of the source of the labor issue. It's probably what is the Chinese um, role company's role in the African market. Like the white people, they do not face that much labor issues, probably because they're playing the capitalist game. They're doing the investment. Um, for example, Two Rivers, the French people are the investors, but Chinese people, they're in charge of construction. And they're the ones um, who have close interaction with the local employees. So this is actually what stirs the labor conflict. And I actually got this idea when I was talking to a Chinese journalist in Kenya. So, 
you know, kind of in, in terms of uh, um, do, just a very basic question. Um, do you how how do you see the this relationship between China and Africa developing in the future? Having now gotten both a glimpse of of you know Chinese companies in Africa, and then also having thought about about the the wider role of China in in the developing world. Like how how do you see the relationship between China and Africa developing in the future? Well, I am not an expert in this field, and I cannot offer a very like um, expert like um, explanation for that. But just for my own personal view, um, in my experience in Kenya, I actually felt that um, there is going to be a close China-Africa re- development because um, China has only been in Africa for um, like about a few years, and then it still takes time for Chinese to get into the community to really get to learn Africa and to um, try to eliminate these labor conflicts. And actually, when I was talking to my driver in Kenya, he actually saw a lot of positive sides that China is doing in Africa. For example, his role as a driver, um, when he was driving, he pointed out a road um, and he said that before it was not a road, it was a river. And then Chinese played some magic and removed that river into a road. And then in his role of driving, he actually felt that it was much more convenient and he showed his appreciation to the Chinese companies. And that actually is um, what happens to a lot of other African employees. They are actually quite thankful to the Chinese companies and they feel that um, the Chinese investment in Africa could be a positive thing because China is now investing in railways, buildings, airports, and all of these infrastructure. And China is also helping with its education. For example, in the slum, um, China is building Beijing um, primary school. So um, China, it is being aware that it wants to gain a better reputation and trying to do something good to Africa to gain a better status in the African society instead of um, the debate um, about how China is investing in Africa just for its natural resources. China is doing its job. It is trying to show that it's the motivation for the investment is not simply natural resources. Okay. Well, do you, you're eleven. You're an eleventh grader at Fudan International School in Shanghai. You're going to be going off to mm-hmm. college uh, in, in one or two years. Do you think you want to study China-Africa relations or Chinese foreign policy? What do you think you're going to do when you go to college? I'm probably going to study international relations, and I'm pretty sure that when I study international relations, I am going to study China and Africa because that's a really hot topic. Okay. Well, Kobus, I think we've got a guest now for the next five years booked uh, for for the show. So (laughs) it has been really just a a pleasure to have you on the show. I think it's it's very important for people to start to understand uh, what the next generation is thinking, both on the African and the Chinese side, but most interestingly from the Chinese side, in part because we've had a lot of our listeners complain that we don't have enough Chinese voices. And even though you're just in 11th grade uh, and you only spent 15 days in, uh, in Kenya, uh, you are extraordinarily articulate about some of these very, very complicated issues. So please tell your parents that you are off to an amazing start, and I think you're going to have a, a great career in university in, in, uh, in Chinese foreign policy studies. Thank you so much. And uh, Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days and, uh, and stay in touch with what the China Africa Project is doing, what's the best way they can get a hold of you? 
you'll see me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, you know, unfortunately, Annie, behind the great firewall, it's a little bit difficult to get uh, Twitter. Are you on Weibo, by the way? Um, not really. Oh, okay. Well, for those of us, you know, and here's the funny thing about our little thing here. We do a lot of uh, social media in the West, which is on Facebook and Twitter. So obviously our our followers in China can't get that. But the number one uh, source of our our newsletter and our podcast is the United States, and number two is China. So our newsletter, which we're sending out every week now, uh, can make it into China. And so we invite everybody to go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there. Uh, If you'd like to follow me on Weibo, uh, I have my name is Dabizelawai, Big Nose Foreigner. So you can look for me under Dabizelawai. Uh, and then uh, you can follow me on Weibo there. I don't really write about China, Africa, but uh, morally about more about daily life. Uh, so for those of you in China, that is uh, that might be a fun way to go to see behind the scenes here. Uh, also, our Facebook page, as Kobus mentioned, 261,000 followers from all over the world having a fantastic discussion about China-Africa relations. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it, just go over to iTunes, search for China Africa Project, and uh, we're right there. And we'd be so grateful if you could leave us uh, a vote, a comment, or anything that helps uh, surface us a little bit higher in the iTunes ecosystem. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.